The third reading from today is from the Gospel of Matthew, Matthew chapter 5. Please stand for the reading of the Gospel. Matthew chapter 5, starting in verse 1. Now when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on the mountainside and sat down. His disciples came to him and he began to teach them. He said, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called the children of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad. Because great is your reward in heaven, for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Not sure if we have any children, but if you'd like to um, escape from the wrath that is to come, <laughs> there's a kids' group out back. They're playing ball, football, and uh, I'm sure they'll color and uh, do other things. And uh, if you decide to join them, I don't think any of us will hold it against you. <clears throat> but let's pray. Okay, so Father in heaven, we come, uh, Lord, to your word. And these are words that we've heard uh, so many times uh, over and over again. And Lord, we pray that you'll give us um, new ears and new eyes uh, in order to see something fresh or in order to be stirred by something which has become so familiar that uh, we don't hear your voice speaking to us in this passage of Scripture. So indeed, Lord, we pray that uh, you would teach us and that um, as we sit at the feet of your son, Jesus, we'll have the grace to not only listen, but to obe be obedient to what he teaches. And again, we ask these things uh, for, the, for the sake of Jesus and, uh, and for the purpose that he would be glorified in our midst. Amen. So it's always... Uh, a challenge, yes. It's always a, um, or not easy, to come to a, uh, a well-known passage of scripture. Uh, the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, the Beatitudes, and surely there must be 40,000 books written about the Beatitudes. There must be another 100,000 web pages uh, that comment 
on the Beatitudes. And the challenge is, well, what can you say new? Or what can you say, how can we say something different? And um, I always remind people that I'm not here to give some new insight, but uh, basically the job of my job and the job of any preacher is to remind us of truths that we already know. But hopefully we can do it in a way that um, is uh, perhaps creative. And so I'd like to approach this text um, from two points. Point number one is from the book of Genesis. We've been reading uh, through Genesis in, the, in our men's Bible study. Uh, and uh, I thought there were some interesting connections. And point number two is on uh, last Friday, uh, not last Friday, yeah, well, sorry, last Friday, <clears throat> we uh, commemorated, yes, International Holocaust and uh, Genocide Day, a day set aside by the United Nations um, to uh, remember the Holocaust and also the other genocides that have happened in, uh, in recent history. And I think both of them might help us uh, look at this text uh, in a way that we haven't done uh, previously. So let's begin with Genesis. <clears throat> with Genesis, we have um, God's creation. God creates uh, out of love. God's intention in his creation is to bring blessing and to enter into a relationship with, the with what he creates, whom he creates. And of course, we have the fall. We have sin. And at the root of sin is rebellion. It is uh, a uh, human refusal, you might say, to depend on God. Does that, <coughs> excuse me, does that rebellion come, um, or what's the source of that rebellion? I always think it's, there's a certain fear already within Adam and Eve that God can't be fully trusted. That in some way, somehow, yes, um, we as human beings have to do an end run around God. We have to outflank him. We need to look after ourselves because we're not fully sure that he has uh, our best at heart. That's my understanding. But in any event, right, the rebellion <clears throat> leads to a fall. And it not only affects our relationship with God on an individual level. I don't know if you've noticed, but relationships between people progressively begin to decline and break down in the book, throughout the book of Genesis, at least in the first 11 chapters. Because the first thing that happens, Adam and Eve start quarreling. It's not my fault, it's her fault. I'm not responsible, she is the one who did it. And the next chapter, immediately, immediately after the sin of rebellion, you have the sin of murder. 
between brothers, which I think is quite yeah, significant, isn't it? Um, isn't it uh, tragic how we as human beings are so easy to kill and so easy to, to use violence? And so we have the tragedy of Cain and Abel. A few chapters later, we have a, a breakdown in the family of Noah after the flood. And finally, you have the, the, the complete, you might say, um, rebellion of the nations, right? In which the nations end up, the nations uh, end up being scattered. And it was in uh, chapter 11, uh, last week, I think, in our Bible study, it really struck me. Yes, relations between humans progressively began to decline, decline, decline. And there is an effort in chapter 11 when the nations decide, come, let us join together and build some tower, right, that is going to enable us uh, to approach God or to reach God. And here you have an effort at community building or trying to, folks trying to, you might say, reunite, trying to fix what happened during the fall. And yet it's done through human effort. There's no dependence on God. In fact, it's, it, the effort is um, like so much of what's happening today. Yes, we're going to unite around um, some form of technology. Yes, we have the ability to build this, uh, to build this tower. And ironically, God says, God comes down and um, he doesn't come down via the tower because the tower is, uh, the, the structure that's being built to reach God uh, in no way uh, is adequate you know, for the task. But God comes down, yes, and he scatters the nations, right? He scatters them, uh, he divides them, um, and per his judgment, perhaps in some ways, yes, is, is our salvation. Because again, yes, the scattering of the nations, um, is a reminder or even a prevention of um, the, our tendency, yes, for some kind of mob rule, right? Some to go along with what's possible, yes, not to go along with what's right. And there's a certain element uh, of the demonic in all of this. And have you ever noticed that our society is not really much different than what we read about in Genesis chapter 11? Because the question that we always ask ourselves is something possible. The question isn't whether it's right or wrong. The question is whether it's possible. Is it possible to invade the next country and take their oil fields? It's possible. We have the army, we have the military, they don't. Yes, is it possible? Yes, uh, technologically, to deliver pornography to every single home in the world. Well, if it's possible, let's do it. Why should, what should, why, what should stop us? Is it possible to raise human beings 
as happens in one particular country, so it seems, so that we can then um, harvest all of their organs for other human beings? Yeah, it's possible, but is it right? Is it moral? Can we put machines in your brain so we can have half machine, half human? Well, soon it will be possible. But who will stop us? Because we don't ask the question, is this right or wrong? Is this what God intended for us? If this, is this what God intends for creation? And in that judgment, yes, a community becomes fragmented. It becomes isolated. Uh, we tend to fight amongst ourselves for certain, but in some ways it's a severe mercy because when the nations of the world or people become united and they're united, yes, uh, they, they center uh, on whether human achievement or they center on um, simply being, uh, being united um, without God, again, the result is dangerous and frightening. And what connects this to the story of the Holocaust, yes, the German attempt to murder uh, the Jewish people, not just the Jewish people in Europe, but they wanted to murder every Jew everywhere in the world. That was their plan. And thankfully, they were not successful. But what enabled the people of Germany, the nation of Germany, that was at least nominally Christian, very civilized, the society that gives us Bach and Beethoven and Schiller, yes, what enables them to receive a Hitler and follow along after him? And the conditions in Germany that existed, yes, um, after the First World War, th this was a community that was shattered, a community in which they felt that there was no longer a community or there was no longer uh, any unity because of the internal divisions, yes, within this society. This was a community that was suffering humiliation. This was a community that wanted revenge this was a community that was looking, not looking for some kind of human self-redemption. Yes, it wasn't God who was going to come and bring the healing, but uh, there, was, there has to be some magic instant, you perhaps solution, because things are so complicated, we can't, we can't figure these things out, yes. And so it's these, it's Genesis chapter 11, the scattering of the nations, right? The breakdown in community, the human needs that existed in Germany, but exist in every society, yes? The desire again for unity, or the desire for, let's say community, the desire for healing, right? The desire for well-being, yes, all of these things are not necessarily bad. The question is, how do we achieve them? Now, why is this so important? Because in the context of Genesis, yes, um, God says to Adam and Eve, you know, I want you to be fruitful and multiply. 
And he says to Abraham, I'm going to bless you so that you multiply. And he says to, uh, again, uh, to the people of Israel to do the same. And finally, through the church, he tells us to multiply by going into all the world and making disciples. God, in his essence, is always looking for a people to dwell in. It's not just about me individually. It's that God wants to dwell in a people that he can call his own. Yes, God himself lives in a community, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And he's looking for a people to reflect, yes, to model who he is. And so God is always interested, not just in saving a bunch of individuals, but in forming and fashioning a community that will reflect him and glorify him. Yes. And again, the fall doesn't just make me an individual sinner. It makes us sinners. And the fall makes uh, relations between you and me difficult. Right? Sin is now in the way. Rebellion is in the way. My fear and anxiety is in the way. And in addition, you have the deception of Satan that stirs up trouble between men and women, between families, between nations, between cultures. And so it's in this context that we should look at Matthew 5, three, Matthew 5. Yes, and Matthew 5 has, says the following. It says, now he went up, when he saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside and sat down Okay, so um, most tour guides and many preachers like to take everyone to the north of Israel, north of the lake, the northwest corner of the Sea of Galilee, and they like to tell us, you see, it's volcanic rock here, basalt. Now Jesus could stand in a certain place and this volcanic rock is going to allow him uh, to amplify his voice. So his teaching can be heard by the thousands. And of course you can see it in the movie uh, where Jesus is you know, talking to the crowds and he gives his beatitudes. Um, and this approach that somehow Jesus is speaking universally, yes, is not just misunderstood textually, it's been misunderstood in some ways throughout all of our history. Yes, because the way we've received this text is that, oh, these, at least for many people, these are wonderful universal values. Everybody should live by them, according to Tolstoy or according to Gandhi. This is what makes Jesus so attractive. But let's read the next verse. The next verse is his disciples came to him and he began to teach them. This is stuff for the disciples. I mean, it's very nice if the world wants to uh, admire and appreciate the teachings of Jesus by taking up the Beatitudes, but this is not some, um, it's not some prescription for human happiness, so to speak, or for the entire world to, uh, uh, to, you know, to take upon themselves. It is for the disciples. 
And if, if that's not, by the way, if that's not convincing, yes, all through, the, all through five and six, Jesus talks about, yes, um, uh, let's say, for example, in verse 20 of the same chapter, for I tell you, unless your righteousness passes that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. Right? The end of, at the end of chapter five, Jesus talks about imitating our heavenly father. Right? This is for people who call God for Godfather. Or in uh, the midst of chapter six, seek first the kingdom of God. And we could add other examples. Yes, so this, is, this is teaching, right, for those who are committed, yes, to following after Jesus, to living. And the teaching isn't just for an individual. The teaching is for a community. And the teaching creates community, right, in the way that God originally intended, not in the way it, end, it ended up in the book of Genesis, in the way that we live it, uh, or most of us live it today. So, because the next verse, sorry, goes on to say, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is are the kingdom of heaven. Now, this is not only about discipleship, but all through the so-called Sermon of the Mount, yes, we have reference to this kingdom of heaven. And the kingdom of heaven in Matthew is the same as the kingdom of God in Luke or Mark, uh, John, or the epistles. They're, they're not two different things. They're the same, it's the, exactly the same. And if you think about it for a minute, who owns the kingdom? Not the poor in spirit, but actually it's God's kingdom. It's God's kingship. We can't own it, or we don't take possession of it, even though there are some people, especially ministers, who somehow think it's their thing, right? yes. And so the best way to translate this in Greek is as follows. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for they make up the kingdom of heaven. They com we comprise the kingdom of heaven. Now, what is the kingdom of heaven here? We, we have emphasized this over the years. And so if you've heard it before, forgive me. But if you're new, I'd just like to point out for, for several minutes the following, is that when Jesus comes and he talks about the kingdom of heaven, yes, he has a, you might say, a sort of a unique definition, yes, of what this term means, yes, what it means in a technical sense, and for, for Jesus, for the Gospels, uh, we can make it easy in a way. Because there are three Ps, yes, that define the kingdom of heaven. Yes, P number one, it's a person. That when Jesus is talking about the kingdom of heaven, he's always, in most cases, pointing to, pointing to himself as being the king. It's a person. Second, it is a it is a presence that brings God's power. Yes, it is a presence that brings God's power. Yes, when Jesus comes, when Jesus comes and he begins to rule and reign in any given situation, 
things happen, sometimes immediately, sometimes slowly. But people are delivered from the devil. There is reconciliation. There's grace for repentance. Many times, but not often, and I can't explain why, there's physical healing. There is forgiveness and healing of trauma and healing of hurts. Yes, where Jesus is present in our lives, where we have the presence of Jesus, we have a power. The power of God is at work in us. And finally, finally, the kingdom of heaven is about a people. There are a number of occasions when Jesus, Jesus describes his movement or his followers, the ones that have made him king, he calls them the kingdom of heaven. Yes, he calls them the kingdom of heaven. And so I'll just give you a few examples because when we're reading the gospels, we need to pay attention to these nuances. Now you're gonna ask me even before I read the examples, wait a minute, I thought the kingdom of heaven was something in the future. Yes, it is the future. It is something present and something future. But most of the times that Jesus uses the term kingdom of heaven, I bet 85% of the time, and I don't think I'm wrong, it is a present reality. It is a present reality, yes. It is something present, and usually we say, but future. I'm not gonna use but. It is something that is present, yes, and something that is future, yes. Something that is future. And the kingdom of heaven is something that we can join because it is a people. It is a movement. And you might say, well, wait a minute. Well, in Matthew 11, which we've discussed before, yes, it says, I'll tell you the truth. Among those born of women, there has not risen anyone greater than John the Baptist. Yet he who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. And again, I've had people ask me, is John the Baptist going to heaven? I mean, because this is what it sounds like. No, John the Baptist prepared the way for Jesus and his movement. He prepared the way for, for, for us in a, in a sense. But John the Baptist was not in the Jesus movement. And if you're a follower of Jesus and one who makes him king and allows him to rule and reign uh, over us, yes, then we're even gr greater than John the Baptist. Or in Matthew chapter 18, yes, when uh, the disciples come to Jesus and ask, who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? They're not talking about heaven as in the sweet by and by. Who is the greatest in your movement? I mean, is it the preachers? Is it the, those, you know, that have the healing ministry? Is it the evangelist who attracts 50,000 people? Is it the person with a private jet and the, um, you know, the YouTube channel that has five million visitors every week? Who's the greatest? Yeah, who, who are, who might, who's, the, who's the most valuable? And what does Jesus say? Jesus, say, Jesus said, he called a little child and had him stand among them. 
And he said, I tell you the truth, unless you change, unless we are transformed and become like little children, we will not be able to enter the movement. We will not be able to enter this Jesus movement. Or at the end of Matthew chapter 9, I think it's verse 64, Jesus says, if you put your hand to the plow and you look back, you're not fit to be in my movement. You're not fit for the kingdom of heaven. What does that mean? Somebody who doesn't plow properly can't go to heaven? It's going to be languishing in hell or purgatory or whatever your theology might be. Not that I endorse purgatory. What's going to happen to this person? What is it? To plow in ancient times, you had to focus. You had to put two, you had to put two hands on the plow and to put your back into what you were doing. You can't have one hand on the plow and the other one on the cell phone talking to your mom. Yeah, or ordering something from Amazon. So it comes by drone, drops it off in the field. No, you have to be, you wanna be in the Jesus movement, you wanna be his disciple, you want the responsibilities and the blessings that come with all that, then we have to focus, right? It has to be the, it has to be the main thing that we're focused on. And so Jesus says, if we listen to it with, in a slightly different way, yes. Blessed are the poor, it's anane ruach, the poor in spirit, because this is what comprises my community. This is what comprises what community should look like. This is what comprises what relationships should look like between men and women, in families, yes, in churches, and hopefully it extends to a town or a village and even a nation, even a nation. And what does it mean to be poor in spirit? Well, we have some nice, we have many examples of what it means to be poor in spirit. And we don't have to go very far from our text to find them because actually they're in the text. So I agree with those Bible scholars who say that the Beatitudes in some way are telling us what it means for us to be poor in spirit. Yes, this enables us, yeah, not only to reflect the values of Jesus or to live in the way that God originally intended for us, going back to creation, but it allows us, right, to be in that place where God rules and reigns over us. Because what does it say in the Lord's Prayer? It says, um, our Father who art in heaven, God is a Father, hallowed be thy name, your kingdom come, how God is a king, your will be done. Yes, where is God's kingdom to be found? It's found amongst people doing his will. Yes, and what is his will? That we poor, that we are poor in spirit and that we join this movement or join this community. And may I warn us, yes, that not everybody in the church is in, is in the kingdom of heaven. 
Not everyone in the church has made Jesus king. Not everyone in the church is walking in the way of repentance or lives in such a way. Yes, lives in such a way that it allows right, the powerful presence of Jesus to work amongst us. And by the way, these values or this way of community, it's good for my family, it's good for my church, it's good for Nigeria, it's good for the United States of America. And of course the whole nation can't, won't adopt this, but we as followers can and should. So blessed are the poor in spirit. What does it mean to be poor in spirit? Yes, the Beatitudes, these are a parallelism Yes, that are explaining and reinforcing this key term, being poor in spirit. Being poor in spirit are those of us who mourn. Being poor in spirit are those of us who are meek. Being poor in spirit are those of us who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Being poor in spirit is being mercy, um, being merciful. Being poor in spirit Yes, is a hunger and thirst for purity and a hatred of sin. Being poor in spirit are being peacemakers. Being poor in spirit might bring persecution. And with each one of these comes a reward. And the reward might be in this lifetime or the reward might be in the life to come. We don't know because there is a blessing, right? If we're merciful, we'll be shown mercy, yes? If we're peacemakers, we'll be called sons of God, and uh, etc. yeah, etc. This is the community, right, that God had intended for us from the beginning. And as I said earlier, we can join this community. And we join the community, yes, again by humbling ourselves and walking in the way of repentance, yes, and showing mercy, working towards peace, living in a way, yes, that um, exalts a certain purity. And just think, that society in Germany, or the, maybe the majority of the society in Nigeria, I will certainly say in, my, in the case of the United States, they don't live by these values. They live by something else, which ends up bringing destruction, which ends up bringing isolation, which ends up, right, ultimately at times, bringing God's judgment. And sometimes, again, God judges us in order to save us, you know, uh, in order to save us from ourselves or to save us from, be from being destructive. Now, being, walking in a way of humility, not very easy. Showing mercy when somebody has done something wrong to us, not very easy. Yes, walking in purity, and rejecting and hating sin, not very easy. 
Yes, living through in and through persecution, not very easy. And none of this can happen unless we depend on the grace of God. None of this can happen unless we are empowered by the Holy Spirit, okay? And none of this can happen unless we're disciples. Now here's the good news about all this. The good news is found in discipleship. It's implicit in discipleship. What does it mean to be a disciple? It's not a person who's instantly transformed. Yes, to be a disciple is to be a learner. It's literally in Hebrew to be a student. Yes, it means that we're imitating a teacher. We're imitating a master. We are sharing in the life of that master in order for what to happen? In order for there to be <clears throat> transformation. It is bigger than salvation, yes? Uh, going back to Genesis, remember in chapter nine of Genesis, or chapter, yeah? Noah was saved. But what happened to Noah? He got drunk and took off his clothes, et cetera, et cetera. He wasn't transformed. Noah wasn't transformed. And many of us are happy to stop at salvation. And salvation becomes sin management or fire insurance. But God's not calling us, yes, just to avoid hell, right, or to have eternal life. He's calling us to something much more. But in his mercy and in his grace, he understands that uh, it's not instant. And so we're, as students, we all start in kindergarten or first grade or second grade, yes? But we don't stay the same, yes? We learn, we grow, yes? And the gap closes. What's the gap? The gap is something that exists in the lives of each one of us. And it is something that progressively should get shorter and shorter as we get older. The gap is between the person I am at this moment and the person that God wants me to be. Yes, that, that, has, to, that, has, that has to become smaller and smaller and smaller. It happens in discipleship. It's not just saying, okay, power of the Holy Spirit. It happens when we intentionally, yes, begin to put the teachings of Jesus, yes, to put his, make his life our model, or to put his teachings uh, into practice. And when that happens, yes, again, we grow into the person, or we become the people that God intended us to be from the very beginning. Is it perfect like the, the Garden of Eden? No. It's not exactly perfect, yes, but it becomes, there becomes a measure of maturity or holiness or wholeness, yes, that brings us blessing and brings blessing to other people. You know, that's the challenge, uh, that's the challenge in front of us, yes, not to be individually pious, as good as that may sound, or individually mature, Yes, but to be a community, again, starting with our family or our church, yes, that is poor in spirit, yes, and shows the world, 
yeah, the blessings and the benefit of doing things God's way and not the way of the world. Brothers and sisters, that's our invitation. But we also need before us yeah, these beatitudes as a way to know, yes, as a way for us to imagine, yes, what life should be. And if we can imagine this and we can desire this, right, or if we can, we don't have to use the word imagine, if we can have a vision of what God wants us to be and we have a desire for that life, uh, then surely the Lord will enable us, yes, to grow, to mature, yes, to come to a place of, um, to come to a place where we can live together, yes, in uh, a blessed way, but based on the idea, based on the reality of all of us being poor in spirit. Yeah. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we, your people, are sometimes we're far away from the place you want us to be. And we're far away from uh, being uh, the people that uh, glorify you and bring uh, blessing to others. We pray that you'll be wor at work at us, uh, work in us, to constantly remind us and to give us the vision, not only of who you are, but of who you want us to be as a people. Come, Lord, and save your people, the people that you've fashioned from the dust of the earth. Lord, save us from our rebellion and save us from our ignorance. Save us from our lack of faith, we pray. And we ask that uh, each one of us will have a renewed passion for your kingdom, for your people, for being the, uh, the community uh, that brings glory and honor to you. Amen. Thank you for listening. If you've been blessed by this teaching, let us know by leaving a comment on our Facebook page, on SoundCloud, or by leaving a review in Apple Podcasts. You can offer practical support by giving a donation at ChristChurchJerusalem.org. Thank you, and blessings from the City of the King.